There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, guys. This is Stop and Search, episode 10, brought to you by Acast in association with Lit UK. And we're on the Distraction Pieces Network. So here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true values seldom stray. So, what's this episode about? Well, what we thought we'd do is revisit last year's Leap Day. Um, if you listen to Scooby's Pips podcast, you would have heard that he did a Leap UK special with us, which kind of almost sort of marked the start of the Distraction Pieces Network. So that was when we decided that we were going to do this podcast, the Stop and Search podcast. So we're joined by Damien Gale from The Guardian, who covered our press conference last year in the Houses of Commons. Uh, we also have Sally Hayden that covered us for Vice last year when we were launching the House of Commons, and Ronnie Cowan MP, who's the SMP representative for Inverclyde, uh, who's been a great champion of our work since then. Um, you'll hear all about it in this episode. Um, so we thought we'd have a bit of a catch-up, see where drug policy's gone in the last year, has it moved forward, has it moved back? Let's have a bit of a chat about it. Quick few thank yous. Thank you to Jack from Waterstones, who's leaving us now, um, the Waterstones Tottenham Court Road have been so brilliant to us. They've really helped us out. So thanks, Jack. And you're in this episode, so great question. And as ever, thank you to Nikki, the producer, who had a bit of a, a, a troubled evening when we recorded this episode because our microphones were bugging out. Um, but we navigated it, so thanks, Nikki. Brilliant star as ever. Um, quickly, if you just go to ukleap.org, uh, email us with suggestions, comments, guest suggestions, uh, or find us on Twitter at ukleap. And Facebook is Facebook ukleap.org. I always forget that one. And just quickly as well, my name is Ad. Thanks for the artwork. You're a star. And as ever, my my small mini on my knees plea. If you can share this podcast around, talk about us, tweet about us, Facebook about us, Instagram, which I have no clue what Instagram's about, but use it anyway. I'm sure it's helpful. And if you fancy giving us a nice review on iTunes and a five-star rating, that really helps as well. I think that's it. So should we get on with the podcast now? Should we have a bit of a chat? So this is Drug Policy, one year on. Here we go. 
Now, Ronnie, as I said, he saw us at Parliament on the 29th of February 2016. And after that, I think you you and Norman Lamb were the people that, that latched onto the issue most and did something with it. You pushed it forward. You actually you wrote articles about it, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote a couple of articles which got picked up, politics, home, places like that, and uh, took it back to my constituency. I uh, had an event similar to this where I did the same sort of format, uh, brought in people who'd been there, seen it, done it, rather than listen to politicians chuntering on about it. I brought in people who had uh, been at the sharp end of it and did the same, tried to replicate what I'd seen at Westminster from one constituency. And we got about 100 people in there that night. And it went down very well. And it was, uh, it's always informative to me. I'm always learning on these things. And I'm a great believer in listening to the experts. And that's a very nice thing to hear, that actually someone believes in experts, because we've discussed this before, that we're in a post-expert world now. And I like to think that the guys... I mean, I'm not law enforcement, but this is why I got involved with Leap, is because I'm into marketing and PR and all that kind of boring stuff that you get around London. And I don't think there's a better voice to project drug law reform than Leap, as much as I am biased now. And covering us on the 29th of February was Damien Gale as well. You did it for The Guardian for us. And I think you managed to do a really good comprehensive piece. And it always baffles me how you managed to get it out so quick. I think you managed to get it published by the time we'd got down to here, which is about two hours later. How did you manage to do that so quick? Did you write it on the train or something? I I wrote it partly while it was still happening. So you weren't even concentrating? (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) So that's why we got you here. We're going to quiz you. We're going to spot the holes in your knowledge now. And then at the time, Sally was working with Vice. Um, She's now with the um, Thomas Reuters Foundation. And she's written for the BBC and worked with the BBC, FT, all the big ones. And Sally, again, an amazing piece, which you can find online. And if you listen to the podcast, which is at acast.com slash stop and search, uh, there will be rolling links along the bottom where we put in all the various different outlets and things. So we'll link in the articles that Sally and Damien wrote for us and also Ronnie. And, and Sally, thank you so much for doing that because, again, you managed to cover the nuance of the discussion, which was, I think you titled it, Spies, Soldiers, Undercover Cops, All Call for Drug Law Reform. Was it a surprise to you when that happened? Was you expecting to have that kind of press conference in Parliament? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose, particularly in Vice, like a lot of our audience would be very young and so kind of drugs and the prevalence of drugs would be something that we're constantly aware of because a a lot of them obviously use drugs. Um, But yeah, I suppose I got the invitation and I just thought it seemed really interesting. Um, I thought it was an interesting idea. I had actually heard kind of former undercover cops or people who had worked in the area talking about this before, but I had never seen this sort of like organized initiative. And and yeah, I I just thought it was really interesting. And And for us, covering a story, you know, because you, you do the same stories over and over again, talking about addicts, talking about the problems of addiction, talking about kind of the, the minutiae of drug reform, but you never get a very kind of comprehensive way to look at it like that, um, and, a, and a new angle, I suppose. And that's what's really interested me, because I've, I've been, as much as I don't want to admit it, just in case I'm rubbish tonight, but I've been doing a bit of research on what you have been writing lately, both of you two specifically, um, and the thing that stands out to me, and this brings Ronnie in as well, is that the difference now compared to last year of the way that drug policy is regionalising. We've got Ireland that's doing new things. We've got Scotland that's trying new things. And yet 
in England, and arguably Wales, we're still stuck and doing nothing. And specifically, Sally, the article that you wrote on what is going on in Dublin at the moment, there was, just for a bit of background, uh, a child, Sally references a child of six that um, got stabbed by a needle and had to go through all the blood checks. Um, and it's those kind of personal stories that have managed to initiate a change in Ireland, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I kind of first started covering it in Ireland uh, last Easter when we had the Easter Rising commemorations. So it's it's like 100 years since we rebelled against the English and that was like a big kind of nationalist thing. Um, it was, you know, just there was like a military parade, which was kind of bizarre, but a lot of a lot of celebrations and while I was there I got a tour from Tony Duffin who works with the Anna Liffey project who works with addicts in inner city Dublin who said you know I can bring you to all the sites where this um where this rebellion happened and show you needles on the ground because addicts are shooting up publicly and so of course I said yes and he just walked me around on a random day like hadn't obviously hadn't set anything up and we did find needles and um, I don't know how much you've followed Ireland, but the problem, uh, even in gang shootings and, and just people publicly shooting up and, uh, yeah, and then and then children stepping on needles as well has become really, really massive. Um, and, and now they are actually, as far as I know, they're going forward with implement or with bringing in supervised injecting rooms. So, yeah, they, there is change happening and... And everyone that I've spoken to feels very positive about that, both, you know, people who know addicts, addicts, people who work with addicts, but then also just people who live in Dublin who think it's actually a great idea. Um, so you, do, you, you see that change happening, which is interesting. We, we, I'd assume that Ireland, I mean, I've got Irish background, my, my entire family's Irish, and they tend to be conservative-leaning. Is, would you say that Ireland is a conservative-leaning country that is doing these, not radical reforms by any stretch, but certainly different to what our aisles broadly are ready to accept? Do you think that a conservative-leaning country, if it is, which I'll let you um, challenge that one, but is it interesting that a country that you wouldn't necessarily think that are going to be forward reform are actually doing something that's proactive? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Ireland is a conservative country. It's it's kind of in a very strange crossroads right now where you have, you know, it's the first country in the world that's legalised gay marriage by referendum with 62%, but it also still doesn't have abortion. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is at this strange crossroads where some things are going very liberal and some things are still very kind of conservative, Catholic, traditional. But, um, I mean, one of the very influential figures was Adolna Reardon, the former drugs minister and equality minister, who was both uh, both campaigned for gay marriage to be brought in and also said, yeah, or campaigned for um, supervised injecting rooms. And so I think there's a lot of empathy going around Ireland. There's a lot of kind of, yeah, changing views, but, but a lot of it is just related to... Um, yeah, I, I don't know, just starting to understand different points of view and and starting to open up to that, and that change is happening very quickly. So I suppose in one way it's surprising, but in another, yeah, it's it's kind of linked together, right? And you're also getting probably medicinal cannabis as well, aren't you? Which is something that we're not remotely capable of addressing in England and Wales just yet. Yeah, and I, and I was completely shocked when I heard that. But, I mean, I, you know, like, I would have been shocked if I had known that gay marriage would pass by 62%. So, 
I think if if you consider like homosexuality was illegal in 1992, divorce was illegal till 1996, you know, these changes can happen very speedily once they start moving. So what would you say has done that? Because we're always having a discussion, Neil, of what comes first, the social movement or the political movement. In Ireland, what would you say happened? Was there a social change or has this happened from top down? I... I don't know, and actually I would like to read research into this, like someone someone actually studying it, because in some situations I think people can be shocked into change and in others they can't. And, I mean, when you look at the abortion law, you know, people have died because of it and nothing has changed. And there have been a lot of... Uh, or there has been a situation anyway recently, I know where a homeless, I think an addict, died outside the door, outside the government... And that did shock people for a very short period of time, and then they kind of just didn't do anything. So, um, so uh, yeah, it's it's very hard to tell. You know, I don't I don't know exactly what creates that change, but I do think that public opinion can shift very speedily and in ways that you can't necessarily kind of imagine. Would you agree with that as well, Ronnie? Because Scotland are going through a lot of different changes at the moment i mean we're going to have to bring up brexit and the fact that there are going to be some very different dynamics that are going to be going on fairly soon um and scotland again have done something that's away from the westminster bubble they're they're debating medicinal cannabis at the smp conference they are probably getting safe injection sites in glasgow um do you think that scotland are ready for these changes and uh because arguably you've probably got more of a problem what we have down in england as well with with drug-related crime and everything else. Do you think that Scotland are ready for that point of reform? I think medicinal cannabis is happening in Scotland and we're looking at the uh, uh, safe injection rooms in Glasgow this now. It's really only a question of getting the legalities tied up. How do you actually put that into place in society where within a building it's okay to do one thing outside that room? It's illegal. We've also got a situation where if addicts are going to it, they want to take their own heroin with them, so they're going to get picked up in the street outside. So all that sort of stuff has to be ironed out. But that's the, the, the legality of the situation. Uh, yeah, I think Scotland is reforming all sorts of issues. Uh, I'm not here to, to, to beat a drum for anything other than uh, the LEAP organisation tonight, but during the, our first referendum campaign, there was a huge political awaiting in Scotland, akin to the Second Enlightenment. You know, The first Enlightenment was in the 1840s, 1850s in Scotland. So we took a long time, but we got there. And I think people have now very comfortable with the situation that they want their politicians to be held accountable and it's not good enough to talk every four or five years and vote and then walk away and say, well, get on with it. So they're constantly, quite correctly, on our backs and there's more and more organisations growing up. The likes of the Common Wheel is a very powerful uh, uh, group of people within Scotland and they are engaged in society at large and in all sorts of subjects, from, from land reform and drug abuse and policing, whatever, will say, this is what we think should be happening. And they'll then engage politicians. And politicians you know, can be quite a lazy bunch. If someone's done all the research and worked for them and they read it through and think that's a good idea, they'll jump on it. And if they particularly think there's votes behind it, which I'm not particularly thinking I'm doing right now, uh, it's, good, it's good at the end of my, my burgeoning political career. But, the, but, there, but there you go. Uh, so I think Scotland as a whole is open to ideas. I say, I'm looking towards a second Scottish independence referendum. But I'm looking towards a Scotland beyond that, defining the country we want Scotland to be. And that means every single aspect of our society is up for grabs. We can't tinker around the edges of things. Sometimes to solve things, you have to make big sweeping changes. Sometimes you have to start with a blank sheet of paper and say, do you know what, the welfare system is rubbish. Let's do a new welfare system. 
you know, and all sorts of policies which I'm not going to bore you with tonight, but I think drug reform is one of those. We've looked at that in Scotland, there's a growing wave of feeling in there which basically says, it's not working, what do you do? We can think of here, you can think of there, will it change anything at all? Do we come down harder? We've tried that, it doesn't work. And that, that awareness within people that something big has to change rather than just continue to try and chop and change things. I honestly believe that's happening in Scotland on a number of issues, and hopefully this is one of them where people are brave enough to actually step up and say, you know, and there's plenty of good examples that we're all familiar with around the world where people have changed it drastically and said, and, and they all prove, seem to be working. I think, but I think that research behind it and convincing people that this is a long-term solution because quite often you'll get a, you'll get a blip where it looks good for a while and then old behaviour will stretch back in the gear and it can, in the long term, not be the solution you're looking for. So the longer places like Portugal are doing good stuff, Switzerland doing good, doing good stuff, cannabis is legal in, in some states in America. So the longer that goes on, where people can then look back at it and they, they can move in that comfort zone. Nobody wants to really be first to jump and get it wrong. So it's about that, unfortunately, a length of time where people can move into that arena, feel comfortable with it, and then it just becomes a, a, an easier transition for them. And I genuinely think in a number of aspects, Scotland is getting there, but I don't want to be too sort of parochial about it and draw a border with the United Kingdom because it is a, it is a UK-wide issue. Yeah? It's a world-wide issue. What level were you at with drug policy reform before you saw the late conference? You, did you have an interest at all within it? As the elected member of Parliament for Inverclyde, Inverclyde's got a, a high instance of, of drug abuse and uh, drug deaths. So it's obviously on my agenda, but as an MP, you get a whole range of subjects who come to you through your email, through events that you go to, and literally things like, like parking and broadband will probably get more contact with them than anything else. Uh, uh, but drug issues I was aware of, uh, it's a thing I've had knowledge of in my life from a very young age. And so you get yourself in the position of an MP and think, oh, what can I do about this? And I came along to that event uh, a year ago today. And it's one of those things, at the end of a long day, and we do do some long days. I know politicians got a bad time, but we do some long days. I walked into a huge meeting room in Westminster and I saw five, six people at a top table. And I thought, oh, it's going to be a longer day than I even thought it was. But every single person came from their personal point of view and just spoke from the heart and from a very knowledgeable position from their own subject matter. So I went away from that, enthused, and immediately when I spoke to my team back up, I said, we've got to bring some of that knowledge here to Inverclyde, uh, and just, just spread it. That's all we can do, spread the word. Politics is a drip, drip, drip thing. It's repeat, repeat, repeat. You wouldn't change the world overnight. So what I'm doing now is just trying to get more and more MPs to, to open up to this discussion and to get this sort of information uh, and where that will take us, we don't know. We know we've got supporters within. It's, it's cross-political. You know, there's, there's Tories, there's, there's Labour, there's Lib Dem, there's Greens. You know, the EDM I put forward had seven different political parties which signed it. So we know it's there. To be perfectly cynical, it's got to be maybe a vote winner before people actually jump on board and say, is someone going to so if it says a vote loser, they'll walk away from it. I think Damien's a good one to speak here because being a reporter for The Guardian, you, you're right in that section of reporting what goes on at, at Westminster but also getting the feedback, what's coming on from the ground. Do you think there is a disconnect at the moment between the Westminster bubble and social circles? Do you think, and I think drug policy possibly is a good emblem for that. Do you, within, do you, I mean, do you ever read the comments that you get on your articles? Is, I suppose this is a good question. Well, I guess the people that read my articles are probably going to be the people who support drug policy reform anyway. But my sense is that there's a bit of a kind of conservative backlash in the Anglo-Saxon world. And we've seen that 
through Brexit, through the election of uh, Donald Trump in the US, which was largely on a kind of white WASP vote. And I wonder if um, the particular position on drug policy in uh, the UK is a, is a reflection of that. I mean, you know, we have record numbers of deaths from drug policy, from, well, from drug abuse at the moment. But no one really seems to care. It's almost like, I'm all right, Jack. You know, if, if um, Johnny down the road is dying of a heroin overdose because he's got dodgy smack and there's no services, um, no addiction services, then people think, well, it's all right because it's, it's five pounds off my income tax at the end of the year because I'm not paying for that. So, um, so I don't know if there's a disconnect at all, really. I think there's still a very strong... Uh, pro-liberalisation lobby in this country and it's perhaps strengthened in recent years as a result of the internet and we're all a lot more connected than we used to be. But I do wonder whether or not actually people really care that much. I mean, I had a, a funny experience a couple of years ago. I met up with an old friend of mine who was best mates um, through secondary school and he was one of the biggest stoners I ever met in my entire life. And um, we were chatting, and we eventually got onto the subject of politics, and he was like, I don't really want to talk about it. And I was like, come on, yeah, let's talk about politics. And he goes, do you know what, Damien? I'm a Tory. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So how can you be a Tory? How can you blaze all that weed? And he still buns weed. And how can you blaze all that weed and be a Tory? And he's like, well, and, and he came out with the usual kind of conservative stuff about immigration and what have you. And he didn't seem to think really, that the fact that it was banned was a problem for him. He could still get an eight for weed, you know, and he was happy with that. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of kind of, what's the word? A lot, yeah, as I said, I'm all right, Jack, attitude yeah. in this country. I think we're quite used to that, aren't we, Neil? I think you're a good one to speak on that. that we, we get that all the time, don't we? I mean, you're out there giving presentations to people that aren't converted. You know, you've done WI Skeptics in a pub, all these different peer groups. And I think they're almost an easier audience to tackle, aren't they, than the ones that have got that kind of apathy within there? Yeah, well, they're certainly the, the more satisfying ones because uh, there's nothing better than actually changing people's minds. But the, the audiences where people are already convinced can be really, really useful because inspiring them to be more, become more active, get involved in the social media, that kind of thing, that, that can be really, really useful. But... But actually, you've, you're absolutely right, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Damien, that there is an enormous amount of um, cannabis smokers who do have that all right, Jack, um, attitude because it's not difficult to score, is it? You know, even, even by government estimates, there's 3 million people regularly using cannabis in this country, and it's a massive business because there is hardly any chance at all of getting caught. And there's competition in the marketplace. People know where to go for the best for the best stuff, if you're in a city anyway. So, so yeah, people, there, that is a problem. Um, but, yeah, the, if, if give me a, a middle-class audience who are hostile any day, really. I think Neil leads us on well there to a bit of housekeeping, what we need to do. Um, I'm always rubbish at remembering to get people to do things. So if you can go... Various different ways you can help. Follow us on social media at UKLEAT on Twitter, UKLEAT.org on Facebook. Uh, our website is UKLEAT.org. Um, and also just share about. If there, it doesn't have to be our articles, but if you see stuff like we've got Jamie over from the um, independent, no, the International Drug Policy Consortium, um, 
please share their stuff as well because they are just second to none on the global scale. Um, there are just so many Transform, Anyone's Child, Release, uh, Vault Fuss. They're all organisations that if you can share, that'd be brilliant. Um, buy Neil's book, that'd be brilliant too. I've got no vested interest in it, but please buy it because it's just brilliant. The same with Johan Harish Chasing the Scream. That is, again, the type of book you can buy and then you can give it to someone and get them to convince their uh, mind. I am going to be self-promoting. If, you can, if you've got Netflix, go and find the Culture High and share that around. Have a Netflix and chill session, which is probably wholly inappropriate on, <laughs> on the Culture High. Uh, there's a new film coming out soon called Grassroots of the Cannabis Revolution, which we've got some announcements to make on that as well coming up. Um, and also, if you want a badge, a Blue Peter badge, which is obviously Leap, um, a minimum donation of five quid, which we have got a bucket over there and badges, or you can do it online as well at ukleap.org, and you can get a badge. So I think, is there anything else, or have we, have we covered that? We do, accept. we do accept more than five pounds. We very much do. <laughs> Funding is always an issue in drug policy reform, so if you ever feel particularly altruistic, come our way, that'd be fantastic. So now I've got all that done, and um, I think... Just obviously listen to the Stop and Search and previous episodes with like Rufus Hound and uh, J.S. Raffaelli who wrote that. We also we had uh, Mark Grist who did a poem for us up here who's a spoken word artist. Uh, he was here with Dr. Van Tulliken who is the BBC doctor that gave up drugs, ironically. Um, so just, again, share all those around. And I think that's it, yeah? Cool, right. Now, back to questions. <laughs> All right, um, Sally, I, I want to go back to you again because like, the island situation, I actually don't know that much about. You know, we're, we're so busy focused on our own little bubble here that um, quite often you, you not overlook what's going on internationally, but it just fascinates me the fact that it's something that's happening here, and Ronnie touched on it with Glasgow, the fact that we're getting safe consumption rooms or safe injection sites, but we're still not addressing medicinal cannabis or some of the kind of what we imagine the lower level reforms, but we're going for the sort of the bigger ones, the life changing ones and even the noxone distribution. Why is it that we can grasp the big challenges, but we're still not getting down to those lower rung ones? Um, well, to be honest, I, because I'm based in London, so I'm not fully up to date on, on like kind of the very specific way that the Ireland policies have been passing. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose it all comes down to politics, doesn't it? I mean, this is a good example in this country as well. We're still doing it. We're, we're having a conversation on the lock zone, on we're having different... Uh, we, we're hopefully having a conversation on drug consumption rooms as well, but we just we can't tackle cannabis. The ACMD want to, don't want to tackle cannabis. Just It doesn't have to be island-centric. Just on a social level, why can we get those bigger pictures but not the smaller rungs? Um... I, I mean, maybe maybe that would be a question for you because I, w I was going to say as well, um, in, in terms of like the LEAP launch, one of the things that really struck me at the launch last year was that um, I think it was Norman Lamb stood up and just said, and we were in the House of Commons, said, you know, at least 50% of the lawmakers here have taken drugs and probably, you know, still take drugs. And yet we're not even discussing these issues. So, so I do, I, I, I mean, I think... That does come down to politics, and you're, you're probably better or better place to answer that than I am. But um, but I yeah I, I do think it's just this major major disconnect between kind of what's being discussed and and what's actually happening. 
Ronnie, what do you reckon on that? I think people still see cannabis as a big issue. I don't think people out with... I think people who don't use drugs at all categorise drugs as drugs. It's just a big thing in their head. They don't tend to differentiate what your Sorry, drug of choice actually is. And if you... I know you were talking about an audience earlier on. If you're talking to an audience who are on board and want to listen to messages, that's one thing. Talking to other audience, you know, I, I was going to go home and get changed. I thought, no, I'll go as I am because I'm a greying man in a grey suit. And that's the audience you're going to get to. And I know, for the course I have, the, the people I know are not drug users, by and large. So to have that conversation with them and say, well, we want to legalise or decriminalise drugs and stuff like that, oh, they, they just hear the word drugs and they back off at that point. If you said to them, let's legalise cannabis, uh, you'd still get the same reaction. They, they're so ill-informed about it. You know, well, that's, that's a gateway, isn't it? Oh, Six months later, you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll be a heroin addict. That's still the ignorance there. As soon as you say drug reform, people back off from that. And by and I think by and large. And that, that's purely and simply from their position of ignorance. Which is why we're doing this. Because, yes, talk to people who agree because they become enthused and go away with the message and talk to their pals at work and spread the message. But really, you've got to get to the people who don't want to engage, who aren't going to come to an event like this. And that's the, the tough nut to crack. And that's why, as an MP, I got involved in this. Because I've got that audience day in, day out. I can bore them to death in the tea room. I can talk to them wherever I go and say, by the way, read this book. Do you know anything about this? And it's a conversation which actually, over the last year, has grown. And you find you do, no pun intended, weed out people who are more, intent, more inclined to have that conversation with you. And once they start having that conversation with you, you're in a position where you can inform. And then they go away and do their own research and, and you become that point of contact people then come back to yeah and and damien you've covered drug policy for a while now on and off you, you know so you cover a lot of different stories at the guardian do you think there has been a bit of a mood change for or against drug policy reform in general um I th i'm not sure that there's been a mood change while i've been a journalist but i do think that perhaps um perhaps there has been a mood change in the past 10 to 15 years in that, you know, if you go back 15 years and we were in the throes of the kind of uh, cool Britannia, you know, it, it was hip to, to do a line of coke with, with breakfast, as um, Liam Gallagher of Oasis said, you know. Um, I think perhaps there was a bit more of a popular culture surrounding it, uh, whereas now we've had the rise of this, this whole fear of um, high-strength skunk and the, uh, the mental health consequences of that, which I was a sceptic about for a long time, but I've actually started to, to sort of come to believe in um, through my discussions with people who work in mental health. Um, but I also think, sort of move, moving away and, and, and perhaps talking a little bit about the, um, the, the political attitudes now, I also think there's a class-based issue um, when it comes to drug use where, you know, members of the Primrose Hill set, you know, um, David Cameron and, and his cronies, probably think it's fine to have a dinner party and then all drop a bit of MDMA at the end and have a little dance around the front room. Or, but they don't want, you know, someone living on a council estate to get up in the morning and have a spliff and think, I'm not going to go to work today because then they're not contributing to GDP and they're becoming part of broken Britain. And I think in their paternalistic sense of, um, you know, how best to run a society, that, um, you know, they, they think that that's actually, it's detrimental. So... I think that, that that's probably a big part of, of what's happening at the moment because, you know, I mean, I, as was mentioned in, in the Leap launch, yeah, a lot of lawmakers have used drugs, probably still use drugs. I remember there was a, a famous famous report about how cocaine had been found in every single toilet of the, of the House of Commons or the, the Houses of Parliament. So they're obviously 
Shuffling it away, obviously. <laughs> For the listening audience, Ronnie's shrinking. <laughs> Ronnie turns red. <laughs> I've never found any. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's my sense of it anyway. I think, you know, that... Um, People are very happy for, for drug use to continue, but they're not happy for it to be in the open um, and to be sort of um, socially and legally sanctioned. It's a bit of a growing cutthroat world where we're just enwrapped in our own issues. Do you think we do get compassion fatigue? Yeah, I, I mean, not to, not to be too depressing about it, but I don't know always that it's even compassion fatigue. I think that there are vulnerable people in societies that are demarginalised and that are ignored and we don't listen to their problems and sometimes they're useful as political scapegoats for stuff and sometimes they're just not paid attention to and I mean homeless people, addicts, um, you know, like particularly asylum seekers have always kind of been, been like not had the same voice as other people and um, yeah so some of it is compassion fatigue and then some of it is just that this this has always kind of happened and so it's always good to try and find ways to bring those voices back into conversations I mean as we try to do as journalists and as you guys are trying to do as well with Leap I suppose um but yeah that's I'd... yeah that is kind of the main thing we do in it is just trying to get people interested to give a damn and I suppose you as an undercover cop has got the best idea of how the average person subscribes to a way of doing things where they think that it is for the greater good, you policing the drug laws seems like an eminently sensible thing to do. But in practice, does that work? And do you think that people can grasp the fact that there is counterproductive methods to, to policing? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think once you get an audience to, to listen to you, uh, then the evidence is quite clearly on the side of reform. And the evidence is it's not just about compassion. You, got, you can't, I, in my experience, you can't really persuade people to suddenly find a load of compassion that isn't there but but people do listen to rational arguments so I mean I, I changed my views completely um obviously I went into policing thinking I was doing the right thing and put, putting a lot of effort into doing it so but then I was quite open to uh considering the evidence of what was going on and actually observing it so it's just a matter of sharing that with people I mean and it's framing it as well because people might not yet find the compassion that's generalizing but perhaps a large number of people can't yet necessarily find compassion for someone who is a problematic heroin user but if you point out to them that around two-thirds of those people are self-medicating for childhood abuse then that sort of you know that I, I find my I find that that does sometimes win people over you know because in the age of in the post Jimmy Savile world we shouldn't be really be so surprised there are lots of broken people out there should we yeah, that's the first time we've ever mentioned that name on this podcast. <laughs> That'd be interesting if we keep that in or not. And when you did the event on the backers, just to explain again, after Ronnie saw us at Parliament on, on February 29th, you then got in contact with us and mutually. We come up with a, an idea to event out locally in Inverclyde where Jim Duffy, um, the former chair of Strathclyde Police Federation and a brilliant member of Leap UK, um, he joined forces with uh, anyone's child, um, and moving on, which is local charity. What was the reaction like? Presumably very different to the to the London Liberal elite that we've got here. With, with a local crowd, do you get a different response? It was the Inverclyde local Liberal elite. <laughs> um, 
we, it was, I'm glad to say it was a very mixed audience and I looked out at it and I knew a lot of people from different campaigns and I thought some of these people are going to be tough to crack. And at the end of it, particularly people, medical professionals, were really pleased at what they'd heard and they could relate to what they'd heard. And now a retired GP has got actively involved. She's seen this for years, she's prescribed for it for years. Uh, and a, a local uh, psychiatrist as well come up to the end of it and said, you know, a different perspective from things I've seen all these years. So, yeah, we, we, we managed to make a few connections. But I believe if you've got an audience of 100 people and you touch two of them, then it's an event worth, well, do, worth doing. Uh, so we, and we, we will do something. There's, there's also an appetite to do something again and to reach out again. I said, we worked with the local charity, our local organisation, it's called Moving On. And it's about taking people moving on from, from their, their addiction issues. So we've got a number of such organisations within Inverclyde. So the next move will be to try and spread it out amongst the different organisations who are maybe coming from it from different perspectives. Because uh, our local organisation, Haven, which is finding people path away from addiction through their faith and a different path to take uh, so there's, there's always going to be avenues we can go down to reach out and find ourselves a, a bigger audience of people who want to engage with us uh, Inverclyde's a big enough place and we've got a big enough problem that it's, a, it's a situation where by I think if we can get people Jim Duffy was absolutely excellent but I keep on harping back to this it's not You've got to convince politicians because ultimately we watch through lobbies and, and, and we, we legislate. But politicians are pressured by their electorate to do what they do. So if you get enough, if I get enough people through my email box writing to me about a particular subject, then I have to take notice. And if people through any sort of protest campaign write to their MPs in sufficient numbers and say, you've got to be better informed about this, you've got to be aware of this, then they, they do. Because ultimately, there are people who want to get re-elected onto their job. And I'm not just too cynical about that, but that's the practicalities of it. Because the dream of an MP is so broad that you can't just go down one avenue. You have to go to areas which you've never had no experience in before in your life. Bad MPs will sit with what they're comfortable with. Good MPs will move on and listen to their constituents because they, that's their job. That's what they like to do in the first place. They shouldn't need push to do it but they will listen to their constituency. If, you, if you've got good MPs, write them. If you're not got good MPs, write them strongly. That's a really good point. And Damien, you've covered a lot of social movements and, and sort of protests. You've been, I've seen you online covering protests as it's been going on. And also you've done stuff on Stop and Search as well. Do you think that issues like Stop and Search... You know, hence we're named after that issue. Do you think these are the points that are going to start getting the constituents voting a certain way or putting pressure on MPs in some sort of way? Well, stop and search really affects a really particular section of our society, um, namely young black men. So, um, I mean, and they've always been marginalised because they don't really have... I mean, there are no constituencies I can think of where the black vote will really swing it. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether that would be, ever be a thing. Um, Is that half the problem, the fact that they don't... In, well, obviously, they don't... You can see why they don't politically engage because, I mean, it's, they're so presumably disenfranchised of what's actually going on in the Westminster bubble. Do you think that's some of the problem is that politicians can easily look over them? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of those people, a lot of the people who are stopped and searched, don't are probably not old enough to vote anyway. You know, and the only way in which they can make their political opinions felt is perhaps by demonstrating. Um, but then we know that the government 
barely listens to the, the views of demonstrators. Um, you know, they're, they're, but I mean, it's difficult to say what would ever swing it politically. I think um, really what you need is the support of of the big media, and um, you know, while the big media, while the Murdochs are supporting, um, you know, continued prohibition for whatever reasons they have for that, it's going to be very difficult. I mean. Uh, Ronnie says that you know we should all write to our MPs, but I'm skeptical about whether that would work uh, with you know with with my MP at least anyway. Okay, well, Norman Lamb and I are trying to get a debate in the House of Commons. The process is uh, it's a backbench business debate, so we go in front of a committee who are the backbench business committee, and we make the argument and say we want to debate this in the House in the House of Commons in the chamber. If I've got enough MPs signed up to that who just want to have the debate, then we get it. If we don't, we don't. So the more MPs that are getting pressured from behind to say, get on the subject, even if for them to stand up with a three-minute speech, it makes it easier for us to get it on the agenda and actually debate it. Yeah, but, you know, when you've got Melanie Phillips in The Times, for example, thundering, you know, <laughs> or you've got that chap in um, the Daily Mail, whose name I can't remember. Mr um, Hitchens? Yes, yes. Yeah. He might get an invite to this show at some point because he keeps coming up. So That would be... That'd be something to watch definitely <laughs> but you know and, and i wonder how much um mps are, are more like well particularly those who are very career-minded are more likely to to follow the, the whims of newspaper editors since they get the exposure that they need really to to have a national kind of impact through um through that kind of media there's a line isn't there i think it was i think it was david cameron that used it that politicians have an entitlement to a private life which is such an insidious line when you when you address it. The fact that we've got so many different criminal records. I mean, you know, cannabis warnings are dropping, but we've still got criminal records that across the board, predominantly for impoverished areas. But a politician has a, an entitlement to a life before politics. That just sums it all up, doesn't it? The fact that that's almost the level of discourse that we have now is that one rule for one, one rule for another. Yeah, it's a bit like saying politicians have an entitlement to hypocrisy. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a strat. I'm getting absolutely kicking, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and from my, from our side, we we do really want to stress, don't we, that we've met a lot of different politicians, haven't we? And the kicking that they do get a lot of times is unwarranted because you know, unless you've got a scandal coming out tomorrow in the papers, but and then I'll retract this. But you do you get some really good people that you can have conversations with that that do dovetail with what we're saying. And uh, Neil, you, as I said, you've spoken to a lot of different politicians. What kind of moods have you got within the different party camps? Oh, I mean, I mean, it's a cross-party issue, so you get support from, from literally from each party. But, um, yeah, it depends how, how private and sort of charter house rules the, the discussion is, really. I remember having um, a... It was actually over at a dinner, policy a policy dinner. Yes, such a thing does exist. Um, and I and, and I was chatting with um, a special advisor of quite a prominent uh, conservative minister. And over the course of, of the of the evening, he conceded each point because you know he's someone who's used to debate, he'll listen to the evidence. And yeah, he said, yeah, you conceded all the points, but tell me why would we do this now? Why would we do this? And where's the support for it going to come from? Which, which emphasises the point that I think that Ronnie's just made. And but interestingly, and I, 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 I would imagine that Ronnie might have a comment about this, he said, well, it would be fine if perhaps we could have a drug reform experiment in somewhere like Wales. 
because then we would have um, then then we would have evidence to be able to present to the rest of the UK. So I, I took that as an argument for devolution of drug policy, personally. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what you meant, but I've got sort of vision of like an island where we put people on an experiment on them, which is uh, not what we're after. But yeah, we have an experiment, have a controlled experiment, and, and as long as we understand it has to be analysed and scrutinised and people's health is the most important thing in it, then, yeah, but, uh, it's, it's fraught with difficulties. I don't want to use this as a negative point, Sally, but you're the youngest person on this panel, and... Do you, would you say that there's... <laughs> I'm just assuming. <laughs> I, I mean, I use Ole, but... <laughs> do you think that the, the younger people are politically engaged at the moment, in, in, just in general, or do you think that they, there's more of a political apathy now than ever? Um, I, I think that people are politically engaged, but I think that in certain areas particular probably particularly drugs reform to be honest it's something that a lot of people haven't been presented with a clear argument explaining and so i think as damien was saying earlier like like a lot of young people do take drugs but they take them very easily and they have access to them very easily and so it's not something that they see as an immediate kind of change that needs to be made and it's not something they haven't they don't necessarily comprehend the harms and and that goes both to, you know, if, if they take, say, cocaine at the weekend, they don't understand where it's coming from or that it may could be, you know, leading to someone's death. And it also, um, it also comes from the fact that, you know, they might not see how, why supervised injecting rooms are necessary because they might say, you know, I don't take heroin, I take cannabis, or I don't take cannabis, I take MDMA, or, you know, there, it's... I think that young people are politically engaged and I think that particularly with the migration crisis, I suppose, which I've covered a lot or, you know, the so-called migration crisis, you can you can call it what you will, but I've seen a huge amount of young people doing incredible things to try and help refugees here and in France and in Greece and, you know, all, all over Europe and and becoming very political on that issue. And I've seen young people become political on against austerity like before I covered the the last general election here and a lot of young people were engaged I covered the Scottish independence referendum and again like I, I've never really seen a turnout like that of young people on the streets you know every day for 12 hours a day going door to door but I just think with with things where it becomes a bit more complex and where they can't necessarily see the harms I think that it, it can be harder to get people to engage in that. Um, in the article that you wrote about Ireland and the, and the drug consumption rooms, you used an example of a guy, 37 years old, um, he, he started off wanting to punish harder because all drugs are bad, and then through his own personal journey, he's realised that reform and some degree of regulation is warranted for public health. Do you think that it's not necessarily a failing on our part, but do you think that drug law reform needs to be able to explain things better? Yeah, I mean, and and I think someone needs to present I mean as Ronnie was saying earlier you know if you make things easy for politicians then then they 
you know, they, they can adopt it a lot easier. And I think the same is true for young people or, or for people who, like, potentially would be politically engaged when you can explain to them exactly what the problem is and exactly what changes could be made and how they'd come about and what they would mean, you know, in, in quite a simple way, then it's much easier for people to start to campaign for that. Whereas, you know, if it's just some, you know, if it's just two words like drug reform, no one, like, they might not necessarily know what that means. Um what kind of readership do you get, Damien? Do you, can you follow it at all? Do you know the amount, the numbers and the and the stats and the geeky stuff behind it? Yeah, yeah, we do have the sort of analytics um, behind the stories that we can look at. And um, I would say it's very changeable. It's sometimes it's very difficult to engage people um, on drug policy story. Sometimes you, know, sometimes you write a story and it's out of nowhere, it will get 100,000 views. And other times you'll write something you think is really interesting and you'll just get 5,000 readers. So it's it's... it's it's difficult. It's a difficult one to capture people's imagination for, well, with rather. And um, sort of addressing the point that um, Sally was talking about, I wonder, I wonder how far the attitude of police um, and the, the fact that we kind of almost have an effective decriminalisation of drugs, um, particularly for those who are most likely, those young people who are most likely to be politically influential, so sort of middle class you know, um, fairly well-to-do, well-educated young people, if they get caught with a couple of grams of MDMA, police might just take it off them and let them go. And, you know, they might not even get a caution. Um, so they probably don't really see that there's a massive problem with with um, the criminality associated with drugs. You know, they, they probably think that actually, you know, they, they can get away with it, you know. And as we've discussed, it's it's fairly easily available and the, and the penalties are not too severe. But as you said as well, that it targets disproportionately certain demographics, doesn't it? So as much as you can be white, middle class and get away with it, it's not going to be the same in certain other constituencies, is it? So why is it that we, we're so ready to turn a blind eye to this, the social ills that does come with drug policy? Is it just literally because I'm all right, Jack? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's perhaps slightly a sense of compassion fatigue. And, you know, in this era of, of austerity where everyone's scrabbling to, to keep their own heads above water, I think perhaps we're less likely to worry about what's happening to, to black youths in Lewisham. Um, you know, if they're getting criminalised, you know, then we're not so concerned about it. We're not so worried about, about what's happening to them because we're just simply too busy thinking about ourselves. I mean, not, not necessarily to, once again, compare drug drugs reform to abortion in Ireland, but... Um, one of the things about abortion not being available in Ireland is that people travel to the UK. So everyone who's middle class, everyone who can afford it, just travels to the UK to get abortions. So it's something like 12 people travel every day um, here. But if people who, ha- say, have visa issues, have financial issues, have, um, you know, if, if people who can't make that journey are the ones impacted and they're the ones without the political voice. And I think with drugs policy... It's, again, the same issue. It's people who are middle class have no problem getting drugs and don't get punished for it. And people who are, say, of, of you know, like young black men or, or from a, a more difficult background are the ones who don't have the voice there. I think Neil actually covers this very eloquently in his book. If, if police departments have got targets to go for, then they'll go for the soft option. And if they can round up kids in an area... Impoverished area, and it's easy for them to see where the drugs are, who's using them. They just go bang, 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 and, and make it, make up the numbers for the month. And it's, a, it's it, could, it could be as simple as that, you know. If the police uh, focus was changed, then 
that wouldn't be the situation. No? Let's, let's have a little bit of a chat about that. Well, in over the years, you've you've had well, obviously a pretty intensive journey. Hence, we got a book and a series coming out about it. But you've obviously had a lot of colleagues as well that have been on both sides of the law. You know, they've been enforcing it. What's the opinion within the police? Do you think there is much of a call for reform? I think, um, well, most police are apolitical, so you can't even engage them in the conversation because they're, I mean, it's a fair enough stunts to take that they don't just make the laws, they just they just enforce them. But there is, over the, over the last 10 years in the, in, in the job, I did notice more people willing to engage and talk about it, and there has been, a, there was a distinct change. Now, it's interesting, I, when I um, got involved in drug law reform, I, and obviously I was, I was whistleblowing about some covert behaviour, some covert policing. So I was public enemy number one to many covert police. So serving police were instructed not to speak to me. But since the book has come out, I've had overwhelming support, the most, most wonderful messages. So it's a small movement within the police, but there is a distinct flavour of recognising the need for reform, and certainly at the very least recognising that, um, that it's not working. And that a lot of policing is actually just causing harm to people. You know, when when police see the same people who just need help coming through the doors over and over again, it, it can become quite depressing. So yeah, I mean, there there has been a great change. But I'd just love to pick up on a, a point that uh, Damien said. It it is a prejudice issue. I, I mean, I think I've probably said on one of these podcasts before that there's a fascinating and horrific statistic from uh, that release. Um, published, and that is if you are black in this country and you stand in the dock for a, a drug offence, you are 13 times more likely to go to prison than someone who is white. Now, I don't think that can be said often enough, really, because that, that is a massive problem in our society. And it is worse because of drug reform. And in the, in the 90s, when I first started buying crack cocaine and I was being encouraged to infiltrate the cocaine networks... It was a black issue because the people who were dealing crack cocaine were black, but the people who were dealing white powder cocaine, there just wasn't the same interest because there wasn't the same political pressure to do so. And the problem is with doing that is if you spend time arresting black people, then that feeds into confirmation bias and it just fuels the whole system. And hence we end up in a situation where you've got that kind of disparity, that kind of, um, that kind of intense racism in our, in our system. What is the view of the politician? I mean, obviously you can't speak for every politician, but um, just as much as I think that, this, that is, I think it was the UK DBC that found out that when polled anonymously, 75% of MPs don't think our drug laws work. Getting them on record is a very different story. Do you get the feeling that some people agree with this in, in the Houses of Parliament but don't necessarily want to come forward and put their put their mark on it just yet? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, in shadow of a doubt, there's a good number of people who would not stay forward, but in private conversations will say, and there's also a good number of people within the police force who would, who would agree with this and say, this isn't working, we've got to change something, but it's not their job. We, we legislate, we tell the police force, this is what you've got to do. Uh, so they're in a very difficult situation. Uh, but anyway, within politics, absolutely, absolutely. There's no, without any shadow of a doubt, there's a good number of people who would step forward to this, given the opportunity, but they've got to find, and I, I don't know them all personally as, as, as individuals, but there has to be something there to just maybe give them that push. Uh, what that is, you've got to find that individual trigger for every individual person, I'm afraid. Yeah. 
Do you think, Damien, that's why we have got a bit of a disenfranchise, disenfranchisement? Because we've got politicians that think one thing but then just go against it based on what they think public opinion is. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the case. I think drug policy has become a bit like an oil tanker, you know, and so sort of doing a U-turn in that is it's going to take a long time. It's going to be very difficult and you've got to have enough space around it to actually make that change. Um, but, I mean, as I said, I mean, you know, the power of, of the right-wing press to make or break politicians, you know, if they start digging into the lives of any particular politician who they want to, they'll probably find something, you know, and if they don't find something, they could find something that's slightly minor and make it sound worse. Do you know what I mean? You know, I've worked for the mail. I know how they operate. <laughs> I've definitely noticed since the last uh, general election, people, particularly young people, who would kind of be much less likely, I think, to vote conservative, do feel very, very disconnected. And so maybe, I mean, it is on the part of the politician, but maybe it's also on the part of them to start trying, as Ronnie said, to trying to make a link to their MP and trying to start hassling the MP and, and saying this is something that you need to pay attention to. I think maybe that relationship does work two ways. Um, how, do, how does the role of social media play within that? Do you think it helps or hinders? Do you think it gives people an outlet but not necessarily channeled in the right directions? I think, again, it probably depends if the politician is on social media because if they're kind of facing a barrage of tweets, maybe they they will start paying attention. But, um, yeah, I, I do. I th- Yeah, there is a problem that people will think by retweeting a lot of stuff I am doing something and actually they're not necessarily doing something because they do get trapped in echo chambers you know how do you respond uh, ronnie on social media do you do you when you get a barrage which no doubt you do is that a good thing or do you just kind of glance away from it I think there's two things. There's Ulster politics, no, absolutely not. Ulster politics meant you get elected, you disappear down here for four or five years, and you could do absolutely nothing if you wanted to, and then go back up and get re-elected, particularly if you're on a party, safe party seat, where you weren't even going to be contested to be the candidate next time round. Some politicians have visited their, their constituency three or four times, and the entire time they're elected. So we don't want to go back to that route. Social media holds politicians to account. And it's, sometimes it's uneasy, and sometimes it can be a real pain in the neck. But it's, it's there, it tends to be used fairly responsibly. Uh, I find I've got a bunch of trogs who will come after me no matter what I do, and you just know that. Uh, so you, there, there's the mute button, uh, which I don't tend to use. I've only got two people barred, from, as of today, I've only got two people barred from my social media. And there's the same people who come back, and I just know no matter what I do, they're not going to be happy with it, and on any given subject. So they get barred. Most people come to you with, with fairly... Uh, a responsible attitude to it and I'll just be pushing you for stuff but I'm, I'm, my, my view on that is very simple if I can answer you in 140 characters then fair enough but if you're going to open a big debate it's not going to happen you cannot have a grown up argument or discussion uh, people will tweet me and say well you haven't answered me well I haven't read my tweet feed for whatever like an, hour, an hour later people will ping me at 3-4 o'clock in the morning and say why are you not talking to me so it's very simple if you want to talk to me here's my email address email me if you want to meet me Come to my constituency and we'll talk face to face. By and large, most people who are argumentative on social media at that point back off. We actually say, come and talk to me face to face. Not in an aggressive fashion, I'm not saying bring it on. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, you want to talk, let's talk. Then most people back off in that situation. And I've got a case very, very recently, someone got very aggressive with me in social media. And that was my response. Here's my email address, come and talk to me. And they don't, they disappear. 
Is that emblematic? So far. <laughs> yeah, so far. Famous last words. If you listen to the podcast, I'll put Ronnie's social media up so you can hassle him. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> Do you think, Damien, that this is... A problem across the board is that the media is so quick. I mean, as I was saying, when I was looking through your articles of last night and seeing what you had written, you've just done so, so much. And not necessarily, I mean, we got rolling news feeds, 24 hour news, that some people argue there isn't 24 hour news, but we have to come out with something. I mean, your articles are, I'm not just saying it because you're here, are credible when they are something that needs to be saying. But the sheer amount that you put out there, do you think that we're so used to having a reactive world now that we just don't allow for a response? Um, no, I, th- I think there's more response than ever, and I think social media has has um, you know contributed to that. I think there's more debate than there has ever been. Um, no, so I, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, do you think the social media then, in media terms, is more of a cause for good? Oh yeah, definitely. I think social media is definitely a, a good thing, and I, I do sort of welcome um, debate with with readers and you know with sources, with politicians, you know about about what issues there are that are going on. Um, certainly, um, but uh, I think it can be difficult to actually focus on an issue in particular when so much stuff is happening. And you know, as you say, we're putting out so many stories all the time. It's very difficult to actually get our teeth into something and actually look beyond the superficial. And you know, really look into the causative aspects of it. 
Because, I mean, you've done some really hitting articles, like the one that I saw yesterday. I mean, we're always talking about the fact that deaths are going up and also hospital admissions are going up for, for both physical and mental traumas to do with drugs. And yet, presumably, we're not having that conversation now. We are here, but not in where I come from in Kent and possibly where you are in Hereford. And, you know, so why is it that we, we can grasp that in certain sectors, but the rest of us just don't need, seem to care? Well, I think it's very difficult because obviously, you know, we've got major, major cuts to public spending. And, um, you know, what the government have done is very clever, which is that they've basically outsourced the spending for all these things to local councils now. So it looks like it's local councils cutting it, but actually they've given the responsibility for drug addiction, for public health to the local councils, and then they've cut the local authority grant. So, um, so they, they've done a good job of masking what it is that they're doing. So unless you're a local newspaper journalist who's looking into specifically what's happening among local councils, you're not going to pick it up. You know, it's not something that's going to appear in the central government accounts. And as a national newspaper journalist, you think, oh, why would I look at the local local um, accounts of whatever, you know, Kent, and Kent County Council? You know, you think that's, that's kind of below you. Or it becomes such a massive job because then you've got to look at the accounts for every single council um, that it just, you know, like it just kind of goes under the radar. Is that half the problem, Sally, is that we're just so bottom-line politics now, everything boils down to cost, and we just don't allow for the human interaction within certain policy issues? I mean, you, as you said, you've covered a lot of different subjects that relate to those third-rail humanistic issues like refugees, abortion, drug policy. Do we just have an allowance of not caring because it's just not cost-effective? Um, I mean, I think I, I think people do care, but I think just... Uh, as Damien as well said, there's so many things going on that change, you know, it takes a lot of time and it's hard to focus on one issue. But I do think that, say, or I'd ho- I'd like to think anyway, say someone reads like an in-depth article or say they hear a good podcast or say they, um, you know, they, they learn something about, say, problems around drugs or problems around drugs legislation. And then they start to see things differently and they, they'll possibly like notice that over a long period of time that you know that there's a problem or that there's um a change that needs to be made and and maybe that's how you know how people care that they don't necessarily go out the day after they read your story and and say I'm gonna do something but that it slightly changes or alters the way that they see the world around them um and and they start to notice just a little bit more and and maybe that makes a difference. So is it quite drip feed? We just have to keep working on that awareness and making the issue that people can grasp and understand because I'm always... There's a bit of a discrepancy in... Not a discrepancy, but there's there's a way that we do things in Leap, isn't there? Is that I'm very much more focused on the sort of the, the entertainment side of things and getting it out there to the layman and entry level. There was we got Becky that was here a little while ago that's the more academic side of us that likes to put it out, good peer-reviewed kind of studies and things like that. Do you think that people don't necessarily understand the stats behind the stories? Uh, I mean, or, or they do and they hear them and then they forget about them. Which, or, which... or are they sceptical as well because of the fact that we're we you know, post-expert world, so therefore you can pull stats out of anywhere and it doesn't mean to say that it's going to be true in their opinion. I, I mean, I, I think probably some people are and some people aren't. I think that in, in terms of what you're talking about, how you create change, um, 
that's you know that you're not going to necessarily even this audience like may, might kind of believe in what you're recommending but will they actually do anything active about it maybe not but I do think that like public opinion maybe changes so you do you do drift feed I mean this has kind of been a big issue for me in terms of um covering migration as you were talking about I've been last few months I've been in um Lebanon and Jordan and Iraq covering you know quite quite traumatizing stories about how tough people are finding fleeing ISIS and Syria and you cover those stories and go you know people someone might read this and they'll care for a second and then they won't care anymore and yeah you can just get very depressed about that or you can go I've somehow contributed to their understanding of the world in even a very small way that maybe when they you know what maybe when they hear a story about um people coming to Europe they might have a kind of glimmer of recognition and think back to that story that you wrote and I don't I don't know that's just kind of what you have to believe as a journalist because otherwise you go why am I doing this so and, and, and Ronnie from a Westminster point of view do you think that politicians are ready to accept evidence or do they still just have their own belief system which anything can't permeate You've got a system down the road where you've got 650 MPs, one's going up to the Speaker. If you can get enough of them to march through the Yes lobby, you can change anything at all. But within a party system, there'll be a whip, which basically says this is how you're going to vote on some issues. Moral and ethical issues aren't whipped. But but you'll find within each party, you'll have somebody who's an expert in that field, somebody who looks after health, somebody who looks after justice, somebody who looks after defence, and they tend to carry the weight within the party. Because that's their their policy policy group, and with them backed up with three or four other people, uh, and that. But so if, if I'm looking for a subject I know nothing at all about, I'll go by whatever I'm told by the the, the policy our policy group leader. Uh, so you've you've <laughs> there's there's no easy way to do this, but ultimately it's down to get people to march through a lobby. You know, ridiculous as it may seem, but it comes down to 649 people uh, who will go the way you. you you can persuade them if they're given the freedom to do that by their party on a subject like this. You can almost guarantee, you know, though SNP do not whip on moral ethical issues, an issue like this at Westminster, you you would find something like this for the the, the, the bigger, better represented parties, it would be whipped. So you've you've really got to go in to me at the top and get the top end people to open up to it. And I think when they open up to it and say, yeah, there's room for scope here, then you'll find the people around them are much more open to expressing their own opinion on it, because a lot of people, it's their career. You know, and if they want to be MPs for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that's not my gig, so I'm not first about upsetting people. <laughs> that's a good thing to hear, I think. I think a round of applause to Ronnie on that one. <laughs> and don't forget, I'm going to come in for questions in a minute. I'm going to ask Damien one more thing. Do you think that, um, is there a risk that we are cutting ourselves down in general down the political sides of left and right, do you think we're segregating to those categories even more now, especially under the, you know, the, the recent happenings in this country, in America? Do you th- is it an issue that we're just going to start going into tribalism from this point? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, mean, I think that there's, there's a kind of uh, dominant ideology which all parties stick to. The closer they get to power... The, the closer they come towards supporting the status quo. I mean, I, I got a call up yesterday from the Liberal Democrats saying, have you seen the latest drug statistics? You know, we can get you a quote, you know, like, and, and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll have a look at them. But, you know, when they were in the coalition, they weren't doing anything, really. 
you know, <laughs> they were just sticking to the same old line, you know, and sticking to the Tory, Tory line of, you know, drugs ruin lives. And they weren't making waves while they had the opportunity to. And it seems the further away they are from power, the more likely they are to actually espouse and promote radical policies that might actually make a change to people's lives. Um, and I don't know, I couldn't speculate as to why that is. Um, I have theories, but, you know, like, like anyone else, you know, I, I couldn't say for sure. It must be difficult for you guys because, I mean, we're on this side of it, always trying to get you know our our name and the branding in whatever media outlet commenting. Do you get loads of calls coming? And this is just I'm kind of going off script here. But do you get loads of calls coming at you now, going, you know, look this, you know, this this story. I'd love a quote in that. Is it difficult to tease out good bits of information based on what's coming at you? Oh yeah, yeah, no, certainly. I mean, you know, you publish a story and everyone wants to chip in. You know, everyone wants to chip in and get their their opinion in there, and you know, try try and basically get their name out as much as possible. I mean, that's why the Lib Dems called me up; they just wanted to get a bit of coverage, really. Um, so yeah, it can be difficult, you know. And I think if you're a, a decent journalist, you know what sources you're going to go to for for the information that you actually rely on and think is actually going to be reliable. It's difficult from our side, isn't it? Because there's there's always something that we can be commenting on, but you you have to choose your battles, don't you? Because if you just took on everything, you'd just be constantly chasing your tail. I mean, you've been inundated the last year with everything, like from, as I said, from this morning to various different radio programmes. You must have had a degree of feedback within that from the general public of how things are going and turning out. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've done loads and loads of radio in particular, Um but I, I mean, I've noticed a big difference in that, especially when you get onto the radio and it's the same people who've interviewed you before, um, and you've won them over a little bit from the last time, and, you, and, and things are getting a little, a little less hostile, and then the, the phone-ins seem seem to be different. So I know, Damien, you said that you've, you think perhaps there's been a, a change over the last 10, 15 years, but I certainly, from the interaction I've had, I've, I'm certainly detecting a, a big difference in the last three years, personally. Um, but I just have to add one point about the Lib Dems. I'm not, I mean, we're a strictly non-partisan organisation. We'd support no one, but we do support anybody who supports drug law reform. And I have to say that when I've debated people and when I speak to people, one of the single most useful things in terms of evidence that I can cite is the Comparators Report. And that was instigated and insisted on by the Lib Dems when they were in the coalition. So um, I, have, I had to chip that in because that's something we use a great deal, so... They did do some good. <laughs> right, so who's got a question? Oh, we got one at the back, Jack. Jack's going to do a question for us. I love this new pinball machine, by the way. So if anybody wants to go with pinball, there it is. I think it's, it's quite cheap as well, by the look of it. It's like 10p or something, isn't it? Oh, no, it's free. Oh, it's free. But it is like 40 years old. So oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've just got a question, actually, about compassion. I think it's a really important word. Um... I grew up in an area in the southwest of England that didn't really approach anything challenging socially head on. Um, drug use, alcoholism, um, wife beating, everything was always pushed under the mat, if you will. It was always like it's a neighbour's issue. It's a, and it is a very kind of, you know, um, restrained kind of way of talking about it. Everybody was very um, collected and very proper and very English. And since moving to London, studying at university, knowing that there is a kind of 
massive explosion of acceptance, actually. And actually, if anything, it's a rite of passage. And knowing, actually, growing up in a kind of area where um, no one spoke about anything, moving to university and discovering Facebook and MySpace and Twitter, and everything suddenly became this enormous explosion of communication as a rite of passage. Being able to tell everybody, even inform my mum on nights out that I've been smashed in a club. And she's commenting on pictures going, what are you doing? You know, but a part of this is last week... Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg comes out with an enormous essay about the position of Facebook. And I really do think that his reach, his personal reach, is beyond any politician, any social mover or philosopher or government. It covers two billion people. And, it's, and, and, and I could not help but be almost terrified by his reach. But also in the same sense that I'm happy in a way that somebody, level-headed, actually socially kind of um, uh, uh, aware, um, where his bottom rule is actually just making people safer, communicating better. Roddy, anybody, what is your opinion of that? When he has that much reach, when he can influence more than any other person, really in modern history, and when it comes to something as personal as drug use, something as unique as drug use something and everybody has their own channel and their access to it and their introduction to it be it something hard or something soft be it having a token a few blunts or really going in on mdma every single weekend when somebody that disassociated socially has that much control of your social life at what point do you as a politician somebody that actually can influence policy somebody that can actually say on behalf of my constituents this is what we feel and we are scared or happy or sad or what what point do we all have to kind of make a stand and and what do you think about his reach about zuckerberg's reach about social media is really the the channel in which you access that and communicate with other people are you scared are you happy do you think it's the a good thing or not i'm very intrigued actually to hear from an mp about that I think when someone has got that sort of reach and you agree with them, you're inclined to think that's a good thing. When they don't, you know, oh, this isn't terrible, this person's got all this power and he's not that person. He's maybe somebody else who's very powerful in the media. You think that's a bad thing, to be honest, because we all want to take populist things forward and you want that voice. But what social media does in general, not just Facebook, is gives everybody the opportunity to chip into it. It's given more people the chance to write their own blogs and to hopefully do the research before they write their own blogs as well. So it gives everybody a louder voice. I don't think it's just about one person putting out a, a huge essay on Facebook. How many people actually read it? As you said, it's a huge essay. Facebook tends to make people write shorter, sharper things. You want to see your... your your cat and your, your dog and, and that sort of stuff. And it doesn't really enhance people's ability to take on huge chunks of information. Uh, but to be absolutely honest with you, if they're saying something I want to hear, then of course you think it's a great thing, you'll trumpet for it. Trumpet been probably the wrong word there. Uh, so, but, uh, so it doesn't always work that way. But social media in general uh, gives, is giving everybody a voice. But, but obviously I'm, I'm 57 years of age. When I grew up, we didn't have this sort of technology I did as a teenager, I, I scribbled things in, in a wee book, you know, which never saw the light of day. Nowadays, I'd be on social media making a complete idiot myself. 
and, try, and try to change the world. That's, that's the way it goes. But the more people are doing that and the more they can be engaged in it, the, the only difference I have with social media is because you do it in public and you do make a fool of yourself and maybe you run away from that. I got to make my mistakes in private and then sort of grew up and hopefully I'd, had better ideas. But if social media gives people that voice where they believe they can actually be heard in, in, in a good way, then it has to be a good thing. The more people are chipping into society, basically I don't preach to my constituents and say, this is what you should be thinking. I'm very much a case of listening to them and saying, well, why are you thinking that? What, what do you want from our society? Why, why, where, where do you come from? What gives you that opinion? And they talk me around to things, and they turn me on to things which I've never really considered in my slightly protected life, I suppose. I've grown up in a middle-class family and working in IT for 35 years, and you know, I, I, I thought I had social awareness. I thought I knew what I was talking about. Uh, but you're learning every day, and particularly this job you're learning every day. And one of the things I've noticed most since I became an MP uh, is the... The, the, the third sector, the charitable sector, which I never really got into nitty-gritty of until I became an MP, and I never appreciated how many very good, very hard-working, very intelligent people are spending their entire working career working for other people. My view for a long time was work hard, earn lots of money, be secure by that money, until I gave up that for other reasons. So I walked away, realized money wasn't making me happy, and I wanted to change a career, I wanted to do different, different things. Well, sort of a long answer to, to a long question, <laughs> but the uh, social media, great thing used properly in the control of one person, it then obviously becomes a very dangerous thing. Do you, does it help within the roles that you do in the media, social media? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Um, well, I have to confess that I've not read Zuckerberg's essay, um, but he kind of frightens me a bit, and the whole position of Facebook and its reach and its power frightens me as well, um, simply because, well, I mean, they have control over almost all of our information sc- um, information stream now. I mean, so many people get their news through social media. Um, you know, the old media are losing out on advertising through social media. I mean, it's a bit of a, an argument that's irrelevant here. But one of the things that frightens me the most about Zuckerberg is the whole idea that they are going to start curating what content we see, you know, not just through algorithms, but also through their own sort of interference through their own editorial team. And, um, and I think that in a way compromises the promise of social media. The promise that, you know, we would be able to get our opinion out and decide, you know, what we want to tell people. And now, you know, if, if it's something which doesn't perhaps fit the, the preconceived narrative of Facebook's editors, it will be branded fake news and, and basically hidden from view. So um, I'm, I'm very nervous about Zuckerberg and his political ambitions. I kind of see him as a bit like... Um, a new version of the old press barons, except, you know, he's infinitely more powerful than Lord Rothermere or the Barclays could ever have dreamed to be. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm a bit ambivalent about it. I would like to see how it would uh, turn out. Um, I actually, this story is going to be slightly irrelevant, but had an experience this weekend, which kind of demonstrates how incredible Facebook is. And, and I would um, I would echo what Damien said, that... It is scary when when people are controlling what you see. And I think particularly for journalists, you know, like the big concern now is that all of the actual news organizations will go out of business. And, and you know, what, what will Facebook do once they lose kind of all the publishers who are publishing on Facebook? But um, so I was in this town called Ashadalam. It's on the Hungarian border. I don't know if any of you, anyone's heard of it. It's on the Hungarian-Serbian border. And they've just banned, uh, or in November, they banned Muslims. They basically banned called prayer, building mosques, um, and wearing burqas. And they've also, 
they've implemented a rule against gay propaganda. Um, so what that is, is kind of being debated, but they are enforcing it at the moment. It is unconstitutional, but they're getting away with it. And so there's a city about 30 minutes away and the local LGBT group posted on Facebook saying, okay, like we're not going to be presumptuous here. Like you're a town of less than 5,000 people. We're guessing there are probably gay people in the town, but you know, Obviously, we're not sure. We'd like to come and protest against this, um, against this law, but you know, it, it's your town, and they did, they didn't just want to bus in and say we'll tell you what to do. And they got messages from four people in a shot alarm all saying we're gay, we're afraid to protest, we have to live here. Please come in and and protest for us. And so they've gone in, and they are now being investigated and potentially will face fines. Um, but it, it is just an example of these people who are living in this town. And I went there and it's just quite odd. Like everyone's walking around and saying everything's fine, you know. And then you have these people who go home and turn on their computers and go on Facebook and go, someone please needs to, ha- needs to help me. And, and this is giving those people the ability to, to make that shout out. And it's also giving this organization the ability to say, you're isolated and you're alone, but, but we'll stand up for you. And I think that that's great, you know. Um, but at the same stage, yeah, for a journalist, it's it's not so fantastic. Hi, um, just wanted to ask, do you think the conversation about drugs within England especially might be a little bit easier for people to relate to and understand if we faced up to our relationship with alcohol a bit more and recognised that alcohol is a drug that probably the vast majority of the British population are regular drug users as well. Perhaps it's an issue of pure discrimination. It's a, it's a, um, it's a funny one This for me in particular because I just recently quit drinking for a period just to sort of, just to see what it was like. And um, uh, I have felt actually a lot better because um, <laughs> alcohol is a, is a particularly powerful, addictive and damaging drug. Um, and I, I do agree with you that most people don't realise that, and you know, people will happily go out and sink six pints and feel like shit for two days, um, but they won't think they won't think of it as a as a drug experience, which I think is is remarkable. And I think, yeah, you know, if we did really understand it as more of a drug experience, perhaps we would understand that there might be some drugs which are better, um, which uh, are less damaging and um, which we could possibly have a more um, healthy relationship with. But obviously, there is a history to alcohol consumption in this country, and there's a huge, legitimate um, legal economy behind it. And um, it's always been a matter of interest to me how much the actual legitimate alcohol economy, or the legitimate alcohol industry, rather, is um, feeding into the whole prohibition agenda. Um, it's never something I've been able to find concrete facts about here in the UK, but I know in the US, um, big um, breweries and distilleries, um, and you know, have actually funded anti. Uh, well, they, they they've funded opposition to um, to cannabis legalization and medicinal cannabis um, initiatives over there. So, I think yeah, there's a big there's a big uh, there's a big conflict there that you know that I think perhaps. Um, the industry would like would like us to to obviously stick to the, the their their drug which they make money off and also i wonder if i mean there's a particular effect effect of alcohol where it, you know alcohol stops you from thinking and uh, you know you go out and you've had a really shitty week and you go out on friday night and you get 
blind, blinding drunk and you, it just makes you forget about how shitty your week was, how crap the world is, how um, much you're being exploited at work. And um, perhaps that's, uh, and <laughs> at the risk of delving into a, a slight conspiracy theory here, uh, perhaps, that's, um, perhaps that's preferable to the authorities and to the powers that be than a drug that might make you sit down and think, actually, we could have a different world. I'll never forget um, going into a nightclub in the 90s. I'd gone out drinking for the first time with a drug squad. as when I first started working undercover. But, um, and I went up to one of them, and they'd been drinking heavily for several hours. And I was trying to make conversation, and he said, fuck off, I'm eyeballing the bouncer. And, and he was basically stood near the bouncer trying to start a fight with him by staring him out. And... Um, and they were really, really raucous. They would get into fights. They would get absolutely blind drunk, fall asleep on the office floor and barely be sober to drive in the morning. And none of them for a moment had saw the irony in that kind of behaviour in what their, their daily job was at all. But it, it's quite a problem for us that argue for reform because the problem is most people see drugs through the lens of alcohol. They they see everything as as destructive as alcohol. So a classic comeback in any debate is, well, look, look at the mess that alcohol is. We don't want any more of the same, do we? And and yet, you know, the evidence is clearly there. Professor Nutt did a fantastic job in his um, Lancet report in 2010 the, um, where he compared, did the comparative harms. And, you know, there is, there is a drastic difference and alcohol sits quite firmly at the top. And certainly from a police officer's point of view, 70% of violent crime is caused by alcohol. Um, all of the, most of the domestics, most of the murders I had anything to do with, were all had alcohol as a very, very key feature. So I, I think you're right that we do need to draw people's attention to alcohol, but unfortunately, in the debate, that actually cut, that actually makes things a little bit difficult for us because it's very difficult for the for people who don't understand other drugs to see things other than through the lens of booze. I actually I did a straw poll on my friends recently because. Um... I had to go register for an NHS doctor and I don't know if you guys have I, I'm sure everyone's done it that um kind of questionnaire where they say have you ever regretted anything after drinking and um there's a whole you have to say how many drinks you drink each week and how many what's the maximum number of drinks and if you get a certain number of points I think it's eight they have to refer you to an alcohol dependency unit and actually you know, the the level for that is quite low, you know, still say, have you ever regretted anything after night drinking, like in your life? And, and you have to say no, basically. And so I was asking my friends, um, had anyone lied during that? And they all said, yeah, of course, we all we all lied. <laughs> like, so I think around alcohol, I mean, people aren't being aren't being honest about their relationship with alcohol either. I don't think that it's that everybody thinks that alcohol is great. I think it's that they're also kind of lying to themselves and to the state and to their doctors. And and that's being encouraged because this NHS test, everyone has to take it. And if they kind of... Uh, maybe it's different for people of different ages but definitely of my age and my friends like it, it would be everybody like my straw poll was 100% that said you know you have to lie or else you get referred so can I, can I do a quick straw poll now can you put your hand up if you don't drink so only four five of us blimey that's not much is it God, that's, that's well surprising. And 
you touched on it in, in your what you said, um, Damien, about lobbying and, and what goes on within the alcohol industry. Have you had much of that generally? Have you seen much lobbying behind closed doors? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. Alcohol is a sort of people's drug of choice and it's, it's accepted and even promoted in our society. And I also agree with what you were saying about it's a, I don't think it's a conspiracy. It's, it's sort of happened. It hasn't been made to happen, but it's happened and government is, is comfortable with that. Uh, 1984 victory gin was at the drink of choice to keep the people in their place. You know, cheap alcohol was readily available, and that kept people uh, uh, sedated. I guess. Uh, do we get lobbied from drinks companies? Oh, absolutely, uh, big style. And in Scotland, we're bringing minimum pricing for alcohol. And to be honest with you, a lot of the big whisky companies are kicking back against that, uh, which is strange because they actually wouldn't be directly affected by it because it's going for the, the cheapest uh, end of the marketplace. Maybe they just consider this where it's going to go. Uh, so yeah, we're lobbied, lobbied heavily. Uh, gambling companies, drink companies, lobby heavily to get uh, political opinion and people on their side. Yeah. Oh, we had a question here, didn't we? Can, can I get your names? I'm rubbish at getting people's names. I just realised that I didn't get anybody's over there. Uh, hi, I'm Sam. Um, so I have a question mainly about the kind of publication of statistics and facts to do with drug reform. Uh, and we've heard some really interesting things tonight, uh, especially from you, Neil, about specific facts to do with racial disparities and that kind of thing. Um, we've also talked about whether people actually listen to them or whether they forget about them immediately. But um, I, suppose, I suppose my question is, I've heard a lot of interesting statistics, but almost all of them have been in these podcasts and I've never heard really any in social media, in the street, in any other kind of source of you know, information. Um, so specifically, I suppose, to Leap, what, what are you doing at the moment which... You know, which could could change that. You know, are you working with organisations like the Joseph? I don't know if you would, but like the Joseph Roundtree organisation, who publish really powerful infographics about poverty and health. Um, or could you do any kind of public ones you'd see in bus shelters, which literally anybody could see, rather than just people who already believe in drug reform? Um, and also, just kind of, I suppose, the rest of the panel, if you have any comments on this about why, you know, if there are any ways we can break out this 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 cycle where the only people who hear about drug reform are people who believe in drug reform. And you don't hear about it if you don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, that's really interesting because I mean Becky uh, Garden, our UK secretary, that was here on the last one. This is her department, and she said exactly that that we need to do more in the way of infographics, that, so people can actually, you know, the attainable levels of information that people can understand. And that's what we are doing. We're working with graphic artists at the moment to try and put these into some sort of semblance that people can understand. But also, it's it's a case of what statistics you use as well because there are certain really hitting ones that do grab people and there are ones that are important to us but don't seem to get that much traction and it's just bizarre, isn't it? And, and this is where people like IDPC as well are brilliant. So if you go to idpc.net, is it? Yeah, uh, they're brilliant for this as well where they put out and support don't punish which we've got on our banners here. These are all different ways of humanising it but also bringing in the statistical arguments as well, release they do fantastic infographics, don't they? Especially on stop and search and things like that. Um, and also Transform. Transform are brilliant as well. And I'll put all those links up on acast.com slash stop and search. Um, so what do you reckon, Neil? How can we further this? Well, uh, this is something we discuss a lot. Um, 
and infographics and something inventive which is going to inspire people to share it is is something that we need to do and what we've been doing recently is we're on the hunt for people who are artistic and inventive and can volunteer and provide their services for us because a lot of what we do relies on funding so this is why we're always trying to get ask people for funding on these podcasts we, we really do need it to do these kind of works you know if you want to do a poster campaign on bus stops then you need to raise the funds to do it so if anyone's listening wants to you know, has any any fundraising ideas? We're all ready to listen to that. But we talk about, for example, you know, you, you need a narrative with a statistic. You need to make it personal to people. So we are on the hunt for people who will do animation because short animation clips to emphasise a statistic is is the way to get it shared. But we haven't got anyone volunteering. So if anyone's listening, we need to be inventive because there's a lot of stuff on social media. We've talked an enormous amount about social media tonight. But so we've got to find the ways to cut through, and part of that is a narrative, and a, certainly animation is is is, is the way. Um, I mean, a statistic that I say whenever I speak that's is very at the core of why we do what we do is that now with the most recent drug figures, there are ten people a day dying in the UK. Ten people a day—that's a lot of grieving families. So, you know, we have to get those stats out. But even that figure doesn't stay with people unless, in some way you can find the narrative and find the way it relates to people. Uh, you said some stats don't really hold much sway and people aren't that interested. What kind of you know, stats are they? So, for example, one that tends to hit with audience is, again, the UK DPC did a report where they found that drug policy essentially cost every taxpayer £400 a year. So if you're in the audience, you're a taxpayer, you're paying £400 basically as a drug policy tax. That gets a connection. People understand that because it's their pocket. Unfortunately, we find that when Neil says something like 10 people a day are dying, not necessarily gives a damn because it's, it's the other. It's those guys over there. It wouldn't happen to my kids. It's someone else's problem. So as much as we're, we're a compassionate society and I believe in you know, what we're doing and the fact that society does care but at the same time they might not necessarily attach themselves to the issues that we're pushing and and i think this is where you guys can possibly put a, an argument across with this as well because a lot of your statistically heavy articles will have infographics in them won't they especially yours damien um do you think that helps do you think we need that as opposed to just dry information being pumped out there um, I think the infographics help, but I don't think they help as much as, um, I mean, the, the key word I think that you said was humanisation. So, you know, we can say 10 people a day die because of, of, of drug um, problems, um, but actually the real way to drive that home is to talk about one of those 10 people who's died and say, you know, this was this was a person who, for instance, self-medicated with heroin for, um, uh, you know, to... to alleviate the the mental ill effects of child sexual abuse and to talk about their life and you know their descent from perhaps being maybe being a um a, a successful member of society who just suddenly realized they couldn't take too much they couldn't take it anymore and it was too much for them to bear and i think that really is the way to drive it home i think rather than an infographic which might look smart and might communicate a lot of information over to someone i think that really doesn't doesn't tug at the heartstrings it doesn't really make people have an emotional response to it it might be informative but i mean as you say i mean dry information it can go in one ear and out the other pretty easily um i think it's the kind of thing you want people to be thinking about before they go to bed at night 
and you know to think that perhaps their children you know could find you know or, or their loved ones maybe might lose a job and start drinking heavily or start you know using um heroin or cocaine or you know or even someone you know someone they know who starts smoking weed and you know has a psychotic episode um you know i think i think once we can actually talk about those stories and make things a lot a lot easier to really tell people about the significance of them but the problem of that is that a lot of people don't really want to talk about it because of the stigma attached to drug use people don't want to be associated with those kinds of stories because they think that actually everyone is going to think that they're scumbags so you know it's 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 a difficult one to to try and broach a difficult subject to broach is it a consideration for you, Sally, in the way that you write your articles of how much you put in humanistic points to the delivery of information and stats? Yeah, I mean, I think that you need both. You can't, you, you, I always try and get in a personal story or two or, you know, a, a few. And then I also always try and get in stats because I do think that, you know, you can, you can find it. If you're only using a personal story, you can kind of find a narrative on, on whatever side you want. But what you need is something that illustrates a larger point. And, and so, yeah, you, you really need both. Um, but one of the other things I was going to say is just, it is, it's about, I think, getting out as many stories as possible and as many different points of view. And um, a book, actually, I just finished reading is Kat, Kat Marnell's book, A How to Murder Your Life. So she's now in her early 30s I think but is a um an amphetamine actually addict who was working in Condé Nast she's an American who ended up having to quit her job because she was addicted to um amphetamines and and various kind of other things and just couldn't keep going at at some stage and after I read it I was reading I mean what she says is that everybody knows a drug addict you know and you might think you don't but actually people who are reliant on various different sorts of substances are all around you and they're not talking about it and um and one of the things I noticed afterwards I was reading a review of the book and they said this is this is great and rare because it's a young woman talking about a drug addiction and that's actually not something that you see a lot and I was thinking to myself actually I don't think I've seen very much of that and I suppose just any any alternative voice the same in my story that you mentioned earlier about the woman who's um I think it was a six-year-old child stood on a needle and then they had to bring her in for drug testing and um or for HIV testing because they were worried that she might have contracted it and um and then afterwards this woman looked into the issues around drug reform and said okay actually it does make sense you know her mind was changed again it's a different point of view and it's a different narrative and and I suppose the more of those that you can tell rather than always having, because it becomes a problem when you're a journalist, you could just keep finding, you know, the one sad addiction story and, and keep telling it and kind of othering those people rather than saying this is something that affects people everywhere, like in all sectors of society and all ages and all, you know, both genders. And um, yeah, I think that for, as a journalist, it's important to keep reminding yourself you're looking for different stories from different types of people rather than always just saying, let me tell the same story again and again. Is that the same in Westminster, Ronnie? Do you think MPs connect more to humanistic tales as opposed to these dry reports, or do you need both? No, ideally you, you get the mix, but the situation would be if you're standing giving a speech, you can't use graphics, you can't use any aids, so it's just a question of standing there talking to people. Uh, stats always, I think, <laughs> is, uh, you tend to think people know what they're talking about when they give you a stat, 
If it's that sort of thirty-seven percent of us do this, you really? Yeah. Who backs them up? We've got a wonderful thing called the Commons Library. If the Commons Library tell me something, it's true. You can hang your hat on it. So we use them as a point of reference. I was saying to, I was saying on, if I went through the number of, of drug deaths in the UK, in Scotland, and in Inverclyde, what caused those deaths? I can go and ask that question of the Commons Library, and they will give them those stats, and they will be absolutely spot on because the research teams there are absolutely fantastic. So yes, you do bring them into to the, the, the your speech, but yeah, ultimately, if it's something you can bring from your own constituency and it's a real life story, and somebody's happy to let you use it, then the, the mix of that is, is obviously more powerful. I think we agree with that, don't we? I think you need the mix of both. Have we got any more questions? We're going to start wrapping up now. Have we got one now? We've got two, right? We'll do these two then. Sorry, that was me. There's no hiding that, is there? That's right on the... All right, John. Uh, Just a thought I had from Jason's question at the very beginning. He's saying that you've been 12 months on now and what's happened in 12 months. It's kind of an open question... And in the last 12 months, as far as I'm aware, the Psychoactive Substance Act came in. Spice was made arrestable for suppliers, but not for users. And then in December, it was reclassified as a Class B substance. And that didn't seem to get very much press. Um, but the original, when it, it seemed that in the press that it was commended and that it was progressive that uh, people weren't going to be arrested as users... And now it seems like policy has taken a step back. So I guess my question is, is policy moving forward or moving backwards? Or The issue is that people are inventing new substances and uh, politicians are trying to catch up with that. So what is it you're spraying on to this? And what is it actually you're taking? And you can legislate against it and say that's a banned substance and then the people who produce it make a quick tweak to it and it doesn't fill into legislation, doesn't fall into legislation anymore, which is why you have these direct legislation committees who jump in and say that's now banned and it hasn't been for a while and people are used to using it. So we're always playing catch-up in that respect because we're trying to ban everything. We're buying all these highs. Uh, and we're always going to be playing catch-up with the people who are actually producing them. So it's, it's a step forward. It is, it is what you said. It's going forward and it's going backwards. I think from our side, it, it has. It's, it's gone strange because as, as much as we've got movement in Scotland with uh, drug consumption rooms, we're having more of a conversation with naloxone, um, which we need to have more of a conversation with. Um, and also, I think we get into the, as Sally said, we're getting to the, the point now where we're addressing injecting and how reforms around that we've already had you know needle exchange for decades and that's only had a positive effect we're, we're understanding those arguments and we're understanding some arguments in the in the kind of quasi decriminalization realm as you said with the psychoactive substance act that we don't criminalize the the essentially the consumer but we're still not getting to the root causes of how decriminalization can have a wider benefit um so we're just in this kind of strange place now where it's kind of ad hoc yeah i mean the the point you made about um spice that was actually westminster council which lobbied the government to get to get that change because of the specific homelessness alleged specific homelessness and the use of spice within the homeless community in that specific um borough and so the government went back on the uh, idea uh, that possession of new psychoactive substances should be 
there should be no offence for possession. And we just went back straight back to the old-fashioned Misuse of Drugs Act formula of actually banning new, new substances. So it, it's almost like the MPS bill hasn't happened, especially at least 90% of MPS are actually synthetic cannabinoids. So, yeah, it's, so that came in December the 16th, uh, 2016. All of the new synthetic cannabinoids were made Class B. And as you say, it barely caused a flutter in the press. And I've, it, it's been a depressing thought ever since, really, because that was, I, I agree, it was a glimmer of hope, the ideal that new drugs legislation wouldn't actually criminalise people. And there are even politicians saying that's because we don't want to criminalise young people. But apparently homeless people don't care, uh, don't, don't matter, because it was about really being able to arrest homeless people. Um, so, yeah, that is a, I agree, that is a massive massive step back uh, that's a blow um but you know I, I we we go into this knowing that we're in it for the long game and there's going to be um there's going to be peaks and troughs and there's going to be days of ups and downs but um generally i i still think that when 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 we speak to people the responses we're getting even even looking at the comments underneath a, an article featuring drugs uh, on, on the mail online even things like that i think are a barometer that we are going in the right direction and and as jason's often makes the point you know is this a social movement or does it come from the top well it, with the nps and synthetic cannabinoids we certainly failed to convince the politicians but i think the social movement continues so we're in it for a long game and we just have to break all of these things down into individual achievable policy issues so we've talked about heroin we talked about safe injection. We need to be talking about heroin-assisted treatment to rescue people from the streets. That's one policy issue. If we break it all down into these individual things, um, then, then we stand a chance of doing it. So I, I think we're making progress. It's just going to be a rough ride. It's also interesting as well that cannabis warnings have been going down because the police, the regional police, don't want to enforce those now. Um, but at the same time, we're not necessarily seeing that as a noticeable change yet. So there, there is strange victories um, and also the fact that the PCC level, uh, the Police and Crime Commissioner, we're having a lot of kind of um, almost state-by-state state reforms where, you know, up in um, Durham, we've got um, Ron Hogg that's on the case. We've got a, a PCC in Wales called Arthur that's really going for it as well. So you, we, there's ways that we can do this in regional manners as well, hence what's going on in Scotland with, with drug consumption rooms as well. Um, do you reckon there's any kind of notable successes and failures within the last year, Damien? I think what you mentioned about the uh, the PCCs, I think that's a, a massive success and it just goes to show that actually, you know, there are people out there who have got a mature attitude to drugs policy and to, to policing of the drugs issue. Um, but sort of picking up on, on what you said, Neil, I wasn't aware that Westminster Council had lobbied to um, to classify synthetic cannabinoids, but it does seem to fit in with the old sort of narrative on on the the genesis of the drug laws, which was an attempt to to criminalise certain communities, and they they wanted to find an excuse to clear homeless people off the streets, and they found it in spice. That's the way I would interpret that, and um, you know, and so in in that sense, you know, like it's kind of politics, the old politics as usual, which is uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a real shame, but you know, it's the 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 politics that we kind of have got used to in this country and uh, you know i think it's a kind of anglo-saxon thing as i said earlier i think there's something to be said as well for 
as much as this is probably not an appropriate thing to say, but let it get to a fast because as we saw in Camden, they're starting to go after bong vendors, which is just, this isn't even on the Misuse of Drugs Act, isn't it? This is just completely going for it. Yeah, I mean, there is plenty of stated cases, actually, which show that it's un- it's just, you are not able to prosecute that. They are, like it's section, section 9 of the Misuse of Drugs Act basically theoretically outlaws selling anything which can be used for the, for the preparation or consumption of, of drugs. But you have, to knowing, you have to sell that knowing that the person is going to use that. Now, Camden police have started arresting people for selling bongs and decorative things. I mean, that's, not, that's policing culture or an attempt to police culture. And, and you know, what's the next thing you're going to do there? Burn books? It's 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 in that direction, isn't it? And um, unfortunately, there's been some some legal advice which have recommended people plead guilty. But I would say anyone in that position seek legal advice before you speak to the police board or be interviewed um, in in that regard. Um, but just on the PCCs thing, I've just realised I, I need to. I'm so glad you said that about PCCs because I, I need to get a plug in for something. So if if I've, you've probably heard of Ron Hogg, but um, there's another very vocal PCC who's supportive of full regulation. He's, he's very active politically, and that's Arfon Jones. He's the PCC for North Wales. And he's just made a documentary with the BBC, with BBC Wales, where he's gone to Portugal and see how things are there. And it's going to be aired on the 14th of March at 20 to 11 at night on BBC Wales. So that is definitely something to be viewed and and shared. I mean, I, I am in it, but I'm I'm just a minor part. Um, I'm just a very short speaking head, in, sort of cheering on from the sidelines. But it's going to be a really interesting uh, program. And when does this go out, Jason? Uh, this Monday. Monday is that the sixth? Yeah. Right. Well, some people listening to it might be able to also tune into um, BBC East where I'll be presenting a programme about heroin use in Northampton. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you've got a telly box that can tune into regional TV, then check that out. That's inside out. So it's like regional news, 6.15, something like that. Cool. Any more plugs for anyone? <laughs> All right, we have one more question over here, don't we? And don't forget, if you want a leap badge... Then uh, Nicky's the guardian of the bucket over there. Nicky's the one that's messed the microphones up tonight, so we're going to sack him after this. <laughs> um, not that he gets anything remotely for this, other than just heartache. Bless him. All right, here we go. What's your name? William. Hi, I'm William. Um, Neil, I think you know me. I'm from the Camden New Journal. So uh, I wrote the story that you were just talking about, about the bongs, but also quite a lot about um, synthetic cannabis. And we wrote about at the time the impact it was having on people, and it was clearly devastating. What I don't think we're aware of is that seemed to be used as propaganda for prohibition. And my question is sort of what could we have done differently? Not just me, but all journalists who are writing about the damaging impacts of spice. I I actually wrote about the problems around synthetic cannabis as well, um... It was, it was in a story I did about Ireland, but it was the same. It was, um, I think, it was leading to suicides. Or that, like that's what people working with um, teenagers who were taking it told me that it was leading to depression and suicide. And I suppose in my stories, I, I actually interviewed people, including those the people who were highlighting it, who were saying um, 
the answer is is increased awareness and legalization so i think tying it all the the thing about journalism as we've said various times tonight is that you're you tend to be trying to rush stuff out and so you don't get in all the facts or all the context and i suppose for us it's just important that you try as much as you can to to you know get get in all the context and all the points of view of people and i think for me every addiction worker i've ever spoken to has been pro drug reform so i don't think it would be journalistically sound of me to do a story interviewing an addiction worker and and give the impression that they were against tougher penalties for people i'll just say what a brilliant question that was as well like what more can journalists do that's just that's like music to our ears isn't it <laughs> yeah it is but but having said that i mean I wouldn't presume to to know to answer that as well as a journalist, really, um, because I know they have their own rules. Oh, what more could what more? Oh, right, what more could we have done? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I thought your piece was great. I mean, you you were really balanced, especially as you came to us and asked us for quotes. So, you know, we we always like that. Um, but what, could, what more can we can we do? Well, I mean, spice is a really tricky one because of the the perception of it is so. Is so dark, but it's worth remembering that spice is a product of prohibition. I don't think that comment can be made often enough. Um, that if cannabis had been regulated 15 years ago, we wouldn't have any spice at all. I don't think we can disagree with that. You know, it's it's the it's it's the moonshine of of cannabis prohibition. And um, I, I don't know what else can we do, Jason. For us, it boils down to funding because if we had our way, we'd be doing events in Camden. We could do an event like this. We could get people like Neil up there. Even more, we got you know we got chief constables on board that support our views. So we'd get we'd just wheel it out. But it just boils down to restrictions on what we can actually do because of the constraints we're facing. So again, if if you feel like dipping into a bucket, feel free. But also, if if there's ways of putting on events without necessarily costing, hence you know like Waterstones, they they're so good hostness uh, that it you know it costs nicky and batteries to get down here and it costs um you know but the fact is is that there are ways that you can be crafty and do events as well that don't necessarily cost across the board um events work you know they it, there's no substitute for getting out there in the community is there you've seen it firsthand yeah absolutely as long as you can get an audience i mean we, we do quite a lot of work with anyone's child and they're some of the best events we get decent because we get decent press you know people are always interested in a grieving parent so we speak alongside someone from anyone's child and that gets it always hits the press and um and it always gets covered well and we get lots of engagement so yeah there's lots of events we can do and that is you know engagement with people is what we need to do from journalist's point of view, what more can you do? What more can we do? Um, obviously, we don't want to turn this into some sort of you know, tied lobbying issue between us because that'd be wholly unethical. But just from a from an industry point of view, what more can be done? Well, I think it's difficult. I mean, as a journalist, you put information out there and then you kind of lose control over what people want to do with it once it's out there. I mean, I'm always very careful to quote um, people who can put things in context and can, you know... I, I'm I'm quite partial, I guess, and I always go to Transform and I'll go to those groups who say, actually, these problems could be solved if we had a regulated drugs economy. So, um, but as I say, I mean, other journalists will take the same facts and they'll spin them a completely different way because of the agenda of the newspaper that they serve, or what they work for, rather, and the agenda of the editors who have commissioned them to write those stories. So it's, it's very difficult from a kind of grassroots 
journalist's point of view, um, particularly if you're a reporter. I mean, if you're a brilliant polemicist, then, you know, perhaps you can write something which will really, you know, get to the heart of the matter and persuade people, um, you know, either way to, to your, your way of thinking. But, you know, I think simply we have to we have to show people how bad the situation is and perhaps give them the perspective, um, you know, uh, that, you know, the reason why it's so bad is, is that because it's uh, because of the prohibition. And so I think this is a good place to wrap up in... in sort of whatever you can say what more can people do to get involved in this subject what more can people do in your industry to report it better um have you got any ideas yeah i mean inform yourself i suppose there's nothing really uh more important than that just just read around it i mean i am not i i I don't like how people bash the press a lot. Like I do think that there are a lot of journalists who are trying to do really, really good work on this and trying to make it fair. Um, and and but I suppose as a reader, you can just search out a wide range of kind of sources and and read them all. And also look at the like Neil's book, or like you know someone who has in depth experience about this and and has written at length about it or particularly journalists who who have reported this over a long period of time and so are very knowledgeable about it rather than someone who's kind of reporting the headline from an inquest or the headline from a court case. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything more important than that, really. And Ronnie, what can we do from a Westminster point of view? What can people get involved with? I was just checking my quote here in the book, page 202. Uh, this wonderful book... Uh, and it says, one of the nice things about coming from a police background is that politicians have to at least pretend to listen to you. Yeah? No one wearing a suit and tie in House of Commons or local government can, cause, can accuse me of passing judgment from an ivory tower. I know about the fight against drug cartels. I've put my life in the line for that fight and I've earned my right to speak out in this. And that's coming from, from Neil's book there. And I think that's hugely important that I, my job as a politician is to get politicians to engage with people like you guys who have been there, seen it, done it and know what you're talking about. Well, that's brilliant, isn't it? And Damien, quick last word from you. Where do you see this going? Do you think we've got movement? Do you think we can do things with this subject? I think I think it's going to be a long road. I think it's going to be very difficult. There's a lot of vested interests who are working against um, drug law liberalisation. Um, but on the other hand, there is a kind of um, informal decriminalisation of drugs, as I've mentioned before. And, you know, people can still go out and enjoy themselves. And, you know... Like, <laughs> Just, um, yeah, so uh, like I say, I mean, that's that's a benefit and also it's a problem. Well, I think if you can give a round of applause to Ronnie Cowan, Damien Gale, Sally Hayden. <laughs> and thanks so much for coming. And if you can get down to March 21st when we're down here or just listen to any of the podcasts that you can't. Thanks so much for coming, guys. Have a good night. Thanks, guys. So that was uh, episode 10, all in the bank, all wrapped up. Uh, if you're listening to this in time, then our next episode that we're recording is going to be at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road on March the 21st. Tickets are free, so pop along, join us. I'm really excited about this next one because it's a double bill. Um, we're going to have a stop and search special, which I'll speak more about in the coming weeks. Um, but the podcast that we're going to be recording is... What can we learn 
from LGBT movements. If you listen to the Distraction Pieces special that Scroobius Pitt recorded at Christmas with the, with the guest hosts of Susie Gage, myself and Jim Smallman, um, I went into a little bit of detail why this one was inspired and why we're doing it. And uh, it's finally going ahead, so I'm well excited. So please come back. Don't forget to listen to all the other Distraction Pieces Network guys because they're fantastic. And I'll see you soon. Bye. Behind your Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details